Inspired by the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, this podcast is about why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. Every generation must reform. We must always be going back to the Bible to make sure we are consistent with the truths taught within. Our doctrine must always be from the Bible. We can learn from others before us, but in the end, we must compare them to what the Bible teaches to make sure our beliefs align with Scripture. The Protestant Reformation did not begin because Martin Luther was trying to rebel against the Roman Catholic Church. He believed there was corruption in the Roman Catholic Church, specifically with how indulgent were being sold, and he wanted it to be corrected. On October 31st, 1517, instead of trick-or-treating, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg. Now, some historians do not believe Luther actually nailed these to the door. Either way, his 95 theses are one of the most significant documents in the history of Christianity. Now, they were supposed to be used as topics for a scholarly debate, not a revolution. So Luther loved the Roman Catholic Church and was concerned about this corruption. Uh, So these 95 theses were an invitation for debate. Anyone opposed to him could come to the church in Wittenberg to debate in person, or they could debate him by letter. So this was the appropriate way to handle a disagreement. Now, some of Luther's students translated these 95 Theses from Latin, which was the scholarly academic language most of the common people could not speak or read Latin. Uh, so that was the, the academic language. They, his students translated it into the common language. And so the, the popularity of these 95 Theses skyrocketed because many people had problems with the corruption in the church. But who could ever gather enough influence to fight against it? About 130 years before Luther, John Wycliffe publicly disagreed with the Roman Catholic Church on several issues. Wycliffe believed sacred scripture had ultimate authority even over the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope. Wycliffe also disagreed with the Roman Catholic Mass and this idea of transubstantiation, we'll get into it later, also with granting indulgences, and that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today. Now, Wycliffe died of a stroke in 1384, and technically he died while still in the communion of the Roman Catholic Church. But around 40 years later, the Council of Constance condemned Wycliffe, and so church officials dug up his bones, burned them, and scattered his ashes into the Swift River. John Huss was burned at the stake in 1415, so this was roughly 100 years before Luther's 95 Theses, and Huss was condemned as well, condemned to death, because he aligned with a lot of Wycliffe's beliefs. So the beliefs that that uh, that Luther is credited for a lot of times, it was actually sort of just working in the underground, um, you know, over 150 years before Luther came on the scene. But the basic message was this: Be careful if you have objections with the Roman Catholic Church. So Luther's 95 theses are said to have sparked the Protestant Reformation, but why are Protestants called Protestants? Several years after these 95 theses, a new church began to form based on the teachings of Luther and and some of his early followers. And so some of the diplomats throughout Germany joined this church, and this led to political debate concerning religious freedom. In 1526, the recess of 27 August stated that each individual government within the empire could decide which religion they wished to follow. But in 1529, the emperor canceled that recess, and in response, the followers of this new church issued protest, and thus they were called Protestants. Now, a few disclaimers as we start a 
what's probably going to be a massive series on Roman Catholicism. One of my biggest fears with this podcast, especially as I discuss other religious beliefs and, and other religions, is that I will misrepresent what they believe. Um, so I do spend a lot of time trying to like get in the heads of, in this case, a Roman Catholic and, and figure out what they're believing, like how how they believe in in certain things. Um, so I, I do try to spend a lot of time doing that before getting on this podcast and and sharing them with you. And so it is my heart to accurately um, profess what they believe and then discuss my disagreements with that. And so uh, for Catholicism, an excellent resource for me has been a website called Catholic Answers. It's www.catholic.com. And so they have a search bar at the top, and it's it's really good. It links articles and videos, and and um, like they they have a radio show where you can call in stuff like that. And and then they post the videos of these call ins on in the in the search bar as well. Like that's some of the things that pop up as well. So really good website if you're interested in learning some different things about Roman Catholicism. Um, also, as I've mentioned before, I love listening to debates, and the Protestant Catholic debates are probably the biggest category. I've listened to a lot of Christian Muslim debates as well. So those are probably my two favorite categories of debates to listen to. Um, So there's like about maybe 15 debates that I have stored on my phone, and most of them I have listened to three or more times. So lots of time spent trying to uh, hear both sides of this argument. So hopefully I will not be making straw man arguments against Roman Catholicism. Now, Also, just like in Protestantism, there are a variety of beliefs in Catholicism. So many Catholics today aren't even aware of some of the dogmatic teachings of the church. They simply go through the motions, they attend Mass once a week, participate in some of the religious practices of the church, you know, because it it helps them feel spiritual, and it's just kind of the culture they grew up in, and this is just what we do, right? And Protestants are guilty of the exact same thing. It's just we have different religious rituals. So, you know, I'm it's it's I'm not going at uh, Roman Catholics who just can just sort of say, well, you know, I, I don't really get into all that with the church, and you know, I just kind of do ju- just the basics. No, I'm talking about the official doctrines, uh, dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church. That's what we're going to be talking about. And so, you know, I'm not um, leaving room for people to just sort of um, take it and take what they want and leave what they want with the Roman Catholic Church. We're going to talk about the official dogmas of the Church. So today's goal, uh, we're going to talk kind of intro into justification, and so what the Roman Catholic Church believes regarding justification. Justification refers to the way sinful mankind is made right with God, uh, the way that we can be in good standing with God. And as you will see, in Catholicism, justification is something that is accomplished by cooperating with the grace given by God. In Protestantism, justification is by grace through faith. It is a gracious declaration of God in which he pronounces sinners legally righteous because their debt for sin was paid by Jesus on the cross. Now, you can always connect with me in a few different ways, bearchristianity at gmail.com, and then on Instagram, you can message me at the real bear Martin. And so if you have any questions or concerns, or maybe you're a Roman Catholic that has come across this podcast and uh, you think I'm misrepresenting or I've got something wrong, uh, please email me. I would love to know about that. Research it more and and as if possible at all, I will correct it in future episodes. So I'd love to hear from you. Now, 
This episode of Bear Christianity is sponsored by The Ugly Filter. Social media has a large influence on the way we think. How many times do we envy the perfect family on the perfect vacation? How many times do we compare ourselves to the perfect appearances of others? Well, not anymore. Introducing The Ugly Filter. The Ugly Filter is a revolutionary app which merges with all social media platforms, making all photos and videos as ugly as possible. What used to be a perfect family at Disney World now shows the kids crying and the parents yelling at each other as they try to file for bankruptcy. Bear Christianity listeners receive the ugly shopping bonus feature when they use the coupon code you ain't got no alibi. The ugly shopping feature makes everything online less attractive and gives all items a one-star review. At just $2,000 per month, think of all the money you'll save. The ugly filter, see the truth. Details may vary, some restrictions may apply. Okay, the Roman Catholic idea of justification starts with the sacraments. So a sacrament, uh, Augustine in the 4th century, he, he called the sacraments visible forms of invisible grace. Um, another way of saying the sacrament is an outward sign instituted by Christ to impart grace to the soul, and that's from the Catholic Answers website. Uh, basically, the sacraments are the ways that one receives grace and blessings from God. And so there are two basic views of sacraments. One is that the sacrament the, the, the sacrament bestows or contains the grace. And so this would definitely be the Roman Catholic view, so that in performing the sacrament, that's actually, that's how you get the grace. All right. The other view of sacraments is that the sign, the, the sacrament is simply a depiction or a representation. It symbolizes the grace that you already have. And so a good example of this, I am a Baptist. I go to a Baptist church. And so we hold to a, um, a doctrine called believer's baptism. So we don't baptize infants. We baptize people once they have already made a profession that Jesus, that they believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so baptism, that's, you know, it'd be like um, the, the people that get baptized in the river, you know, and oh, brother, or art thou? So you get dunked under the water and then raised back up. And this is a symbol of our death, burial, and resurrection in Christ. And so it, it's a symbol of what's already happened inwardly. So a couple different ways to view the sacraments. But again, the Roman Catholic Church sees the sacraments as the actual way in which that grace is distributed to the person. So Protestants and Catholics have sacraments. They, they have two in common, baptism and then the Lord's Supper, or also called the Eucharist or the Mass. Now, they, Protestants and Catholics have very different views on what takes place during those, but that, those two sacraments, at least in name, they share in common. Uh, Catholics have seven total sacraments, and so the other five are confession, confirmation, holy orders, matrimony, and extreme unction. And extreme unction, that's the one where a priest is called to pray for someone who is very ill or on their deathbed. So how is a Roman Catholic justified? How are they made in good standing or right with God? Well, it starts with original sin, and so Catholics believe that the first sin in, uh, of Adam causes every child thereafter to be born with a sinful nature. They are stained with sin, and this cannot be overcome without the grace of God. So in, in, uh, on a very basic level, this is going to be similar to what Arminians and Calvinists believe on, on the total depravity, total inability concept. We're all born in sin. So uh, Catholics call it original sin. 
And then baptism, a, a faithful Catholic family will baptize their children as infants. And at the moment of baptism, that original sin that the baby's born with is washed away. And so if the baby died right after that, they would go straight to heaven. Now, if you are not baptized in the Roman Catholic Church until you are an adult, this original sin and all previous sins are forgiven. This is really important. Um, Also, all the temporal punishments for those sins prior to baptism are satisfied as well. They they are forgiven. So it's like a baptism is like a completely clean slate. If an adult got baptized in the Roman Catholic Church and then died of a heart attack, the, the second later, he goes straight to heaven, okay? No matter what he'd done in the past. All right, so after, you know, assuming you don't die the second after baptism, then we're all human and we sin. And so after baptism, there are two basic categories of sins that that one may commit in, in Roman Catholicism. The first is the worst one. It's called mortal sin. And the catechism of the Catholic Church, it, it says this of mortal sin. Mortal sin destroys charity in the heart of man by a grave violation of God's law. It turns man away from God. And man prefers an inferior good to God. So, an example of uh, some examples of mortal sin would be murder, adultery, idolatry. Um, so, just I guess in general, you can think of it as the the worst sins. All right. Now, the other category of sin in Roman Catholicism are venial sins. And so, again, from the Catechism of the Catholic Church venial sins, it says, one commits venial sin when in a less serious matter he does not observe the standard prescribed by the moral law or when he disobeys the moral law in a grave matter but without full knowledge or complete consent. It goes on to say, venial sin weakens charity. And so mortal sin destroys charity. Venial sin weakens charity. And this deserves temporal punishment. Deliberate and unrepentant venial sin disposes us little by little to commit mortal sin. However, venial sin does not break the covenant with God. With God's grace, it is humanly repairable. Venial sin does not deprive the sinner of sanctifying grace, friendship with God, charity, and consequently eternal happiness. So basically, if you uh, are baptized, but then you commit a mortal sin, you are on your way to hell unless you do some of the things that I'm going to mention in just a second. But if you only commit a venial sin, you're still on your way to heaven, but you're going to have to pay for some of that in purgatory. And again, we're going to talk about a lot about that later, but mortal is the worst of the two. Now, in researching this, I discovered there is a great mystery as to the specifics of what constitutes a mortal versus a venial sin. There are lots of opinions, even in the Catholic community. Um, I heard one uh, guy from Catholic Answers explain it this way. So he's like taking calls um, on the radio, but the video I saw this video on YouTube, so it's a video of the studio, the radio studio. Hopefully, hopefully you're tracking with me here. Um, so anyway, and so he's explaining to the listener, he said, in venial sin, you are moving in the direction of serving God, but you slip up. It's like a temporary looking away from the main focus. And so in the video, he's using his arms to, to signal, like trying to, str- to stay on a straight path in front of him. Now, when he when this guy begins talking about mortal sin, he says to the listener, this is a willful turning from God. At this point, he uses hands to signal moving in the opposite direction. And so th- that's, that's how he explained the difference here. Um, again, the important thing here is that venial sins do not completely destroy one's good standing with God. It can be repaired. Mortal sins completely separate you from God. 
um, and your eternal destiny is hell unless you repent, confess sins to a priest, perform satisfaction of penance, and and we're we're getting ready to get into that now. So now, uh, people committing venial sins are also encouraged to do penance as well, but it's not necessary in order to go to heaven. So what is penance? Now, you may have heard penance or confession or acts of penance before. Uh, Penance has three basic parts, and uh, penance is one of those, but also sometimes it, it refers to all three parts. Just like confession um, is one part of, of those three, but sometimes it just means it's sort of a word used to describe the whole thing, and you'll, you'll get what I'm saying. So there's three basic parts of penance. The first is contrition. You must genuinely be sorry for your sin, and not just sorry that you got caught or that you're going to have to suffer punishment, you must be sorry because you know that sin is an offense against a holy and righteous God. And so it is a true sorrow for your sin. And I really appreciate this. You know, sometimes Catholics are accused of just kind of going through the rituals, and that's because a lot of Catholics do. But, um, you know, they go to Mass when they can, they give some money to the church, say some Hail Marys and Our Fathers, and they think that's that's good enough. Well, Protestants do the same thing. It's just, again, it's just different rituals. And so what I appreciate here is that what Catholicism is trying to teach is that true contrition is all about your heart. You, you have to genuinely be sorry for for your sin. So that's the first part of penance. You have to truly be sorry. The next part is confession. So once you have a contrite heart, you need to confess your sins to a priest. Now, why to a priest? Because Catholics believe that the ability to absolve sin was given by Jesus to the apostles, and then that power was passed down from them to the priest today. And so after his resurrection and just before his encounter with Doubting Thomas, Jesus says this to his disciples. It's in John 20, verses 21 through 23. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven given them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And that's exactly what a priest can do. When you confess to a priest, he can say, okay, your sins are forgiven. It's not that the priest himself is forgiving them. He's he's sort of speaking on God's behalf, and, and he's saying, yes, you know, God has given me the power to determine if your sins are forgiven or withheld. And so if, if the priest feels that you are truly sorry for your sin and that, um, that also you're going to follow through in the penance, then the priest will absolve you of your sin. Also, if he feels that you're just um, not serious about it, he can withhold the forgiveness of that sin until he feels like you are uh, truly contrite and, and you know, going through this process the right way. All right, so that's, that's where Catholics get this idea of the, you know, confessing to a priest. Now, the third part is called satisfaction or acts of penance. And so, again, penance can refer to the total, all three, contrition, confession, and satisfaction, or uh, sometimes it can be just talking about one specific thing. Um, So satisfaction or acts of penance is the third part, and these are the things that the sinner does uh, as a a way of showing the truthfulness of their confession. So it helps the, the person who sinned refocus their devotion on the things of God, and it is part of the healing process because the sinner is truly grieved by their sin. And so this is what's familiar to many people in regards to the acts of penance. It's the saying of a certain number of Hail Marys or Our Fathers, um, I don't mean to be flippant here, but this is always, it's kind of like the spiritual version of an elementary school teacher making you write, I will not talk in class. 
class, you know, over and over again. Um, now, to be fair, Catholics are saying you 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 know they're they're trying to emphasize that you must have a true heart of repent of repentance. So the school kid, you know, he can have a horrible attitude and just write what the teacher, you know, I will not talk in class, but. You know, truly, you want Catholics are saying you must have a a true heart of repentance as you're saying these, you know, ten Hail Marys or ten Our Fathers or whatever the priest has given you um, to, as your acts of penance in order to get forgiveness of these sins. So some uh, sometimes penance is fairly simple, just some Hail Marys or Our Fathers uh, may may take a little bit longer depending on your sin. So uh, saying the Rosary, there's um, there, there's lots of different things in the Roman Catholic Church that can be prescribed as uh, penance for sin. So uh, penance or the sacrament of penance is a way of referring to all three. It's contrition, which is the true sorrow, confession to a priest and these acts of penance, which is doing the things that the priest prescribes. So what now? What does penance do for sin? Let's assume that that we've sinned, and then we've done all of those things. We have the, the right heart. We have the, the right attitude in approaching all this. We've said all our, our Hail Marys and our Our Fathers. We've done exactly what the priest asked us to do. What did that do for us? All right? So penance does two things. It forgives a person from the guilt of sin, and it removes the eternal punishment for those sins. And you know, especially in the case of mortal sin, you are bound for hell, but after you do your, your uh, acts of penance, um, confess to the priest, all that stuff, now you are, you're back on the right track, um, so you're not going to hell anymore. However, temporal punishments remain. This, this part is very important. So eternal punishments are forgiven. But temporal punishments for that sin remain. Both venial and mortal, you have temporal punishments that remain. So Jesus' death on the cross forgave us of eternal punishment of hell, but the temporary punishments uh, remain on us, and then we have to sort of um, satisfy those with our own works, okay? Uh, so here's an example. As an example, a child disobeys their parents. There will be punishment for that disobedience. And this is like the eternal punishment we deserve for our sin. So Jesus' death on the cross pays for that. However, for the disobedient child, the parents also want the child to learn their lessons so they do not keep disobeying in the same way. And so the consequence of their disobedience is kind of like the idea of temporal punishments. And so God forgives the eternal punishment through Jesus, but we still have to undergo temporal punishments to essentially learn our lesson. All right, and so a, a sort of an earthly example of this would be parents may you know the kid disobeys and there's an initial punishment. All right, so maybe like a spanking or you know whatever, just some sort of immediate punishment for what they did wrong. Now, also in, in along, also with that, they may take away video games for a month. So the child is forgiven of their disobedience, but to learn their lesson, the parents, you know, give him a a temporal punishment by taking away video games for the month. Okay, and so that's kind of a a um, earthly example. Now these temporal punishments for the sinner they can be paid during one's life on earth, or they will have to be paid in purgatory before you're able to go to heaven. 
All right, so an episode on purgatory is coming later, but for now, just think of it as a cleansing station before one goes to heaven. No unclean person can stand before the perfect holiness of God. And so therefore, they need to be cleansed or purged. That's where we get purgatory, uh, purged of their imperfections. Now, obviously, you want to spend as little time in purgatory as possible. So how do we minimize this time? And this is where merit and satisfaction come into play. So, um, it, it, you know, if you have, if you sin, you have temporal punishments that you still have to uh, pay for in some way, and so you have to earn merit. Now, Catholics will say, uh, but you know, as a Protestant, if you're listening to this, you're like, oh, there you go, they're they're working for their salvation; they have to to earn it. Well, Catholics will say that the merit that's given to you is from Jesus. And so, therefore, it's still all based on Jesus Christ as far as how we are saved. And so that's that's kind of the workaround. <laughs> I'm trying, you know, um, I I think that's a, a very, honest, obviously, as a Protestant, I, I just think that's very weak, but that's how Catholics will uh, say it. They, they're not going to say, oh, yeah, sure, we're, we're working, we're earning it in and of ourselves to get to heaven. They'll say, no, we are working, but... Our, the merit that we're earning is is still graciously given to us from God. All right, so hopefully that makes sense. It took me a while to wrap my head around that, um, and if you're a Catholic out there, I hope I've explained that the right way. Just know this, Catholics are, are trying to say, and I, and I think they're being very inconsistent, and it's a weak argument, but Catholics are trying to say that it's still all by the grace of God. Okay, um, so how do we earn this merit? So in modern times, we think of merit as something earned, but Catholics interpret that word in a slightly different way. Uh, merit used to be considered a, a word more equivalent to a reward. And so there are three types of merit or rewards in Catholic theology. The first one is strict merit. And this only applies to Jesus Christ. He was obedient to God the Father and gave his life to pay the punishment for sin. And it would be wrong of God not to forgive us because Jesus merited our forgiveness. A real-world example of strict merit, it would be like an agreement between myself and a teenager in the neighborhood to mow my lawn. So I say the value of mowing my lawn is $30. And if he mows the yard... I am legally obligated to pay him $30. He did $30 worth of work, and I paid him $30. That is strict merit, okay? Now, the second form of merit is called congruous merit. Congruous merit. And this is a reward given, but it is not owed in any legal sense. And so uh, in trying to come up with, in keeping with the lawnmower thing here, Let's say I was out of town and this same kid who who's never mowed my grass before, we have no previous arrangements, okay? This same kid is walking through the neighborhood and he noticed that my grass is tall. And so he mows my grass for me. We have no prior agreement, okay? Now, I am not obligated to pay him anything. However, if if I, you know, it, it's sort of like the right thing to do. I'm not obligated to pay it, but it would be a good thing for me to pay him. And so if I give him any money, that would be congruous merit or a congruous reward for what he did. I'm not obligated in any way to give it to him, but I give it to him anyway. All right. The third one is called condign merit, and it's spelled C-O-N-D-I-G-N. Okay, condign merit. And this is merit or reward that God is obligated to give us Okay, he's obligated to give it to us, but not because we deserve it. So in strict merit, it, it's 
the obligation is based on it's deserved, okay? The, the $30 to mow my grass, he mowed my grass, so he deserves exactly what I give him. In condign merit, the only reason God is obligated to give it to us is because he promised he would. All right, so the obligation is something that he chose to do out of out of his grace, okay? And so this is different from strict merit because the value of what we give God is is far inferior to what he gives back to us. All right? So hopefully I can break this down for you. So we offer prayer and fasting to God or we give alms to the poor. But God gives us eternal life. And so in the Bible, God promises to reward us for our works, but our works are so small and so worthless in comparison to eternal life. This is where the condign merit aspect comes into play. And so it's not that God has to give us eternal life, but in his grace, he promised to reward or give us merit for our good works. And so back to mowing the yard, if I say to my five-year-old, if you help me mow the grass, I will give you $30. Now, is my five-year-old actually doing $30 worth of work like like the kid, the teenager in the neighborhood? No, because honestly, I'm doing pretty much all of the work and my five-year-old is just kind of hanging out with me. Uh, so the five-year-old is not doing $30 worth of work. But my and, and so my five-year-old is not earning strict merit. Rather, the only reason I am obligated to pay her is because I have promised to pay her. So I didn't have to make that promise. I didn't have to pay her anything. I could have said, you're five, you're my child, and you live here too, and you're going to help me mow the yard. But out of my grace, I said, I will pay you if you help me mow the yard. And so I'm a gracious father. And so that that would be, she was she would be earning condign merit. And this is how a Catholic views condign merit. The, the Roman Catholic is obtaining condign merit when they do good works. It's not that their works are equivalent to God giving them eternal life. They're just saying, oh, this is the way God set it up. We're, we're, God promised us rewards, eternal rewards for good works. And so therefore, that, that's how they, that's why they work. All right. And so hopefully I've been able to explain those three types of merit. And this is also why a Catholic says we're not working our way to heaven, because even though they are working for rewards, the reward is still seen as the gracious act of God, all right? So there, there's two ways to think about merit, too. There's satisfaction and there's and there's merit, and sometimes merit's just sort of, uh, you know, used to speak of both of them. And so um, so I've also spent a lot of time reading to try to, to try to figure this out, too. So... Um, if a so here think about it this way if a Catholic commits sin they go through the penance and uh, so that removes the eternal punishment and those types of things but they're left with the temporal punishment okay so these temporal punishments they have to be atoned for or satisfied while on earth or in purgatory and so the more merit the more rewards you earn on earth the less time you have to spend in purgatory the easiest way to think of this is, is like a divine bank account okay except here's the key in the roman catholic economy you are simultaneously building wealth or merit as well as paying off your debt or satisfying these temporal punishments and so after i go through uh, penance i still have this temporal punishment on my account that i have to pay off either on earth or in purgatory so i can start doing some extra stuff i can i can pray more i can fast i can give alms to the poor there's lots of different things in the church that are sort of considered giving me, uh, you know, ways of earning this merit. 
And so the more of that I do, the more I'm paying off my, I'm satisfying this, this temporal punishment debt that I owe. And also at the same time, I'm increasing my merit. I'm increasing my rewards. Okay. So this is where, this is how indulgences are going to come into the picture. So some people are so good that they have excess merit. They, they've earned more merit than, so they've paid off all their debt, but they just kept earning merit. And so they have excess merit to make it into heaven. Now, the ultimate example of this is Jesus Christ. Jesus was perfect. He had no sin. Therefore, he has infinite merit, okay? Now, who else has excess merit? Mary and the saints. And so all this excess merit is deposited into what the church calls the treasury of the church or the treasury of merit, okay? And the treasury of merit is this, you know, uh, divine savings account that can can be that we can access, okay, through the Pope. All right. So that's so let's talk about indulgences. Indulgences. Some people think the Roman Catholic Church quit the practice of indulgences, you know, shortly after the Reformation because of all the corruption, but this is incorrect. The Roman Catholic Church still practices the the you know the Pope still grants indulgences. However, during the time of Martin Luther, there was a lot of corruption. So the, the Roman Catholic Church has separated itself from that corruption, but indulgences are still a very big part of the church. And so indulgences are a way to be relieved from temporary punishment of sin by accessing these excess merits of Jesus, Mary, and the saints in the treasury of merit. Here is a quote from Indulgentiarum Doctrina. I hope I said that right. It's Latin. Uh, it, this is an official Catholic document from Pope Paul VI on indulgences. And so leading up to this quote, it's talking about how Jesus' merits are infinite. I've already mentioned that. Um, but it, here's the quote. This treasury also includes the truly immense, unfathomable, and ever pristine value before God of the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary and all the saints, who following in the footsteps of Christ, the Lord, by His grace, have sanctified their lives and fulfilled the mission entrusted to them by the Father. Thus, while attaining their own salvation, they have also cooperated in the salvation of their brothers in the unity of the mystical body. So there are some, like the Virgin Mary and the saints, who are so good, they have excess merit, that they've not only earned their own salvation, but now their excess merit can be used to, and applied to others. And this is where we get the treasury of merits. So when you have temporal sin that you have to pay off, you can pay it off yourself through personal acts of righteousness, okay? And you're you're gaining your own merit, but also you can do some things to to get an indulgence that accesses the merits of of Jesus, Mary and the saints from this treasury of merit. So there's two types of indulgences, plenary and partial. A plenary indulgence frees you from all temporal punishments up to that point. That's the big one. That's the one you want. So basically, no purgatory. If you get a plenary indulgence and then die of a heart attack a second later, straight to heaven, okay? Now, a partial indulgence is just that. It's, it partially takes away some of your time in purgatory. Now, here's the thing. Nobody knows how long you're supposed to spend in purgatory. It's not like you can you know, check your watch and see how much time you, you're whittling away. So it's, it's, a, it's 
sort of strange. I mean, it, it, I guess you just have to trust that it's taken away some, but you don't really know how much. And so, um, so that's partial indulgences. So let's focus on plenary indulgences. Some examples today of how one can earn a plenary indulgence would be Bible reading for 30 minutes, saying the rosary with your family, pilgrimages to certain places listed by the church. There's also websites and apps that you know list all the ways that you can gain indulgences. So there's lots of different ways to do it. Now, when you do that, one of those things that I've just mentioned, you must also do a few things after that or slightly before. So uh, um, you do the above activity, and then you must go to Mass, confession, and then you need to pray for the intentions of the Pope. And then also you have to have, this is the big one, you have to have an heart, a heart or the church says an interior disposition, which is completely detached from sin, both venial and mortal. And so basically in your heart, you must um, desire at that, that moment to be as holy as possible, not wanting to do any, not wanting to commit any type of sin. And, you know, that it, so it's, um, that's the best way I've heard it explained is you, you've got to have a, a completely pure heart as you're seeking this indulge, this plenary indulgence. So, um, you know, Catholics would admit that a plenary indulgence is a difficult thing to obtain. Now, indulgences can also be performed for those loved ones who are already in purgatory. So you can do indulgences for yourself, or you can do indulgences for others, and, and you just specify that that's, that's who you're doing it for. Now, ultimately, you get an indulgence because the Pope is the one who has access to this treasury of merit. And so that's where the, the, the Pope has the power here. He can access this treasury of merit and then apply that indulgence to whoever is seeking it. And so the Pope is the one who sort of controls the, the treasury of merit. So we've talked about penance and indulgences and the treasury of merit. And so what's my problem with all of this? The, the biggest problem for me is where in the world is all of this stuff in the Bible? Where are all these formal requirements for the, the acts of penance or indulgences or the treasury of merit in the Bible? For instance, you know, the Pope says, oh, if you read your Bible for 30 minutes, you know, in, for one time, one day, read your Bible for 30 minutes and then do the, the other stuff that you're supposed to do, go to confession, mass, um, have a, a pure heart, you know, pray for the Pope. You, you can have a plenary indulgence. I mean, like he just gets to decide 30 minutes? Where? What if you read 29? I, I mean, I just, you know, this stuff that the the authority that the Roman Catholic Church gives the Pope and and claims for itself is not biblical. And so we're going to we're going to get into all that in the in future episodes, but that's the biggest problem I have. These are all man-made systems which keep Catholics under the authority of the church and the pope. And we see this in other religions as well where the the founder of the religion has some sort of authority to dispense from God to everybody else. And if you don't go through them, then you can't get God's grace or, you know, whatever that religion is is claiming you need. And so so this is just another man-made system where you have these authority figures that you must go through in order to get to God. These these traditions are not founded on the Bible, and, and so we'll get into a lot of this later. Also, 
they they will have these traditions and then sort of go back to the Bible to try to find any little hint or trace of a verse that they can possibly use to justify these traditions. So in talking about indulgences and the idea of uh, people needing to pay for temporal punishments, one of the things that I came across, uh, one example I came across a lot from different Catholic teachers and, and different materials, they use this example. It's David uh, king David, the, the same one who killed Goliath, as a king, he saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof of her house, and so he he lusted after her and he wanted her, and so he summoned her to the palace, slept with her, and when she got pregnant, he arranged for her husband, one of his most trusted soldiers, to be killed in battle. So here we have David, he committed adultery and murder, so two mortal sins for David. Now, after he repented, he was forgiven by God, but in punishment, God told him that the child would die. So Catholics say, see, God forgave David, but he still had to suffer these temporal punishments. Now, the examples that they use for temporal punishments are all earthly consequences for sin. They are not spiritual. So on a spiritual level, we are clean from sin. God forgives. And so the, to, the idea to say, well, he, you know, he had these temporal punishments, so therefore there must be some sort of uh, mysterious temporal spiritual punishments that we have to pay for if when we sin it, it's it's not biblical they're they're using an earthly example and then sort of um assuming that this is, is this is what's happening on a spiritual level Psalm 103 11 through 12 for as high as the heavens are above the earth so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him as far as the east is from the west so far does he remove our transgressions from us Sure, we will have to suffer the consequences of sin on earth, but again, there's nothing in the Bible about this mysterious spiritual temporal punishment that is not forgiven by God. The Roman Catholic Church does this all the time with many of their beliefs. So like acts of penance, indulgences, the treasury of merit, many beliefs about the Virgin Mary, they developed over history. And so the Roman Catholic Church then has to go back into the Bible and again, try to find a verse that, that they could possibly use for, for these beliefs. And so this is no problem for a church who holds that the traditions and teaching of the church are equal with the Bible. And so, you know, basically, they don't, it doesn't have to be in the Bible because they're saying, well, we're the church and, and Jesus gave Peter all this authority. And so, if, you know, over time, if these doctrines develop, well, that's just because the Holy Spirit guided us into this sort of full truth of, of what should be taught. And so, their traditions can, can develop over time. And it's not really a problem because they believe tradition and scripture are equal. Now, that is a that's going to be a huge problem and we're going to talk about sola scriptura versus what what the Roman Catholic Church believes in a future episode. Um but you know the the traditions and the power of the church is just immense. Another common example from the Bible used to justify the idea of this treasury of merit concept is that the Bible calls the church the body of Christ. And Catholics refer to this as the mystical body. So in the indulgences section of the Catholic Encyclopedia, under the subheading, Basis for the Doctrine, they list Romans 12.5 as a defense for the treasury of merit and the idea that, that others can pay for sin, like we're all working together to pay for one another's sin, so the really good ones can, can help the not-so-good ones pay for their sin. 
And so Romans 12, 5, here's the verse that they, that they quote. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. All right? So that's the first verse listed in this basis for the doctrines of indulgences from the Catholic Encyclopedia. Now, this verse in Romans is about people having different gifts from God and that we should use our gifts for the benefit of the church. It has nothing to do with the concept of Jesus, Mary, and the saints earning excess merit for uh, for others to use. So here's the broader passage. Here's the context. So that was Romans 12, 5. I'm going to start in verse 4 and read through verse 8. All right, so four, as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. And then here's the verse the Catholics use, verse five. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And so some people in the church have different gifts than others. I mean, we this is common sense. We, we all know that some people have different gifts than other people, and Paul is encouraging everyone to use their gifts for the glory of God and for the benefit of the church. And so just, you know, a lot of times in a, in a church, the pastor is the one that sort of gets all the praise, but there's a lot of work being done behind the scenes. And Paul is encouraging the church that every person matters in their gifts. All right, this has nothing to do with some people gaining excess merit to to pay for the lack of others. And again, this is just a sampling of how the Roman Catholic Church uses the Bible to justify their man-made traditions. Now, one of the clearest verses in the Bible regarding salvation is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And you've heard it several times before on this podcast, but you need to hear it again. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. By the way, Protestants believe that Christians should do good works, but it is not the good works that are a, uh, that are contributing in any way possible towards our own salvation. Good works are because we are saved, all right? So we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. All right, now, here is the Catholic translation. For by grace you've been saved through baptism, even if you are an infant and have no clue what is happening. But if you sin after that, you need to do penance. And even that is not enough to completely save you because you need to pay for the temporal punishments of your sin as well. You can't expect God to forgive eternal and temporal punishments at the same time. But don't worry, because of God's grace and because he entrusted the Pope with access to the treasury of merits, you can access the merits of Jesus, Mary, and the saints which will help relieve you of some of these temporal punishments. If you don't do that, then don't worry. You go to purgatory until you are clean enough to enter heaven because you finally attained perfection. Now, obviously, that is not an official quote from any Catholic Bible, but you can see the the contrast that I'm drawing there with all this man-made tradition stuff in order to get to God. 
So given all of the stuff that that a Catholic has to go through to to supposedly be right with God, it's quite twisted to say that they are saved by the work of Jesus Christ alone. You know, again, you know, Catholics will say that all of this is by the grace of God because we are we are sinners and so Jesus paid for our sin and even when we do good works it, it's we're earning this condign sort of merit this gracious merit that God is giving us so in a way they, they they're kind of they can speak out of both sides of their mouth they can say that uh, we are earning it we're working but also oh well it's but it's all God's grace. Um, but this this idea of using the mixed merits of Jesus, Mary, and the saints as a way of satisfying temporal punishment, or that that some people can can earn so much excess merit that they you know they have extra to share, it, it, this is this is taking away from what Christ did for us on the cross. The Bible speaks of salvation as a gift from God. The only way to receive a gift is with empty hands. We come with empty hands of faith. So the power of the Roman Catholic Church, they, they control how one is saved because they, they control the sacraments. The only way you can get God's grace is through the power of the church. So Roman Catholic baptism, penance, indulgences, the church has all this power over the salvation of others. And I wonder if that power has ever been abused. Well, let's go back to the time of Luther and talk about indulgences, and this will be a crash course in history, okay? Pope Leo X was one of the most corrupt popes to ever hold the papacy. Church offices were being sold to the highest bidder in a condemned practice called simony, which is basically the selling of spiritual goods. Albert of Brandenburg was an ambitious and wealthy young man who had already purchased two bishoprics. Now, when one of the most important archbishoprics in Mainz, that's M-A-I-N-Z, Mainz became available, he wanted to purchase this archbishopric as well. Pope Leo wanted to refurbish Rome, and one of his greatest dreams was to finish the building of St. Peter's Basilica, and this was going to be very expensive. So Leo needs money, and Albert wants to buy the archbishopric. And so Leo, the Pope, Leo, and Albert struck a deal. To pay off his debt, Pope Leo authorized Albert to sell indulgences, and half the proceeds went to the Pope. And Albert then appointed men to travel throughout the empire selling these indulgences. Now, John Tetzel was the man responsible for selling indulgences in Germany, and that's where Luther lived. And so as, as Tetzel was preaching throughout Germany, he pulled at the heartstrings of peasants. He would come into town, and, and he had a group with him, and they, they would be preaching, trying to sell these indulgences. And they would describe the horrible realities of torture and purgatory, and they would say things like, imagine your loved ones crying out for you. You have the opportunity to, to purchase this plenary indulgence for me and free me from purgatory, and, and will you not free them? Is there you know any sacrifice too big to free your loved ones from purgatory? So he's really pulling at the emotions of these peasants. Uh, they made statements like, these indulgences are um, make a sinner cleaner than when coming out of baptism, or cleaner than Adam before the fall. His most famous little jingle is this, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And so these plenary indulgences were sometimes as expensive as a half a year's wages for these peasants, but they were you know, coughing up the money. In, in, because they were trying to free their loved ones or simply purchase for themselves a plenary indulgence. Now, 
Tetzel, you know, mainly targeted the poor and the uneducated because the educated members of the Roman Catholic Church understood that he these indulgences were not that, that he was not selling them or being consistent with the church's teachings on indulgences. And so, when Luther heard of Tetzel's preaching, he was infuriated, and this prompted the writing of his ninety-five theses. There are so many verses I could close this episode with, but it's Colossians 2, 13, and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. (laughs) 